You may have noticed something interesting with this psalm, that when he's speaking about his grief and when he's praying to God for deliverance, that he's praying that God would set him free in order that he could sing thankful praises of response in his deliverance. And then the point of it all is at the end that the righteous shall gather round to share in these blessings that he's received through being delivered. We see a small taste of that already in our text for today. The scripture reading for today is taken from Luke chapter 4. And we'll see the Lord's deliverance already beginning to be at work in this part of his ministry. Luke chapter 4, the verses 31 to 37. And you'll be able to find that on page 1184 of your pew Bible. Jesus has just been in uh, Nazareth. He's, he's been preaching throughout Galilee. Then he just went to Nazareth, back to his hometown. And when they rejected him, it says he went on his way. We come to verse 31. Then he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbaths. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. Now in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet, come out of him. And when the demon had shown him in their when the demon had thrown him in their midst, it came out of him and did not hurt him. Then they were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, What a word this is! For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him went into every place in the surrounding region. The word of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Last time that we were walking through the Gospel of Luke together, you may remember how Jesus had been going on a preaching tour of Galilee. And how he had included his hometown of Nazareth in his preaching tour. The substance of this tour could be summed up under the gospel message that he read from the prophet Isaiah while he was there. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In this, he proclaims first his anointed authority and the fact that he brings the good news and that the year of the Lord's favor is being ushered in. He points to the works that he does to liberate people from their physical things, his healings and his other miracles, as evidence that he is liberating the people spiritually. All of his works, he states here, are to point to the fact that he's bringing a gospel that will liberate them from sin. Many people were impressed by him and all spoke well about him until he got to Nazareth, his hometown. 
And there we see most vividly the truth of what the Apostle John spoke about in the opening verses of his gospel. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, but the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. And there we also see the shadow of the cross. Jews who ought to have recognized and acknowledged him when he read about himself from the prophecy of Isaiah and said, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing, instead scorned him. They couldn't accept that he might have authority. And when he had the gall, when he had the nerve to call them out on their lack of belief and suggest that God might pass them over because of it, They were so infuriated that they tried to throw him off a cliff. But Jesus does have authority. And he uses that authority. While they might not believe it, they're in his hometown of Nazareth, while they might not believe it, Jesus goes on to prove his authority over the spiritual world and the physical world. Before this, Satan had tried a direct assault by tempting Jesus in the desert. Then Christ's own people supported the agenda of Satan when they took away any hometown support that Jesus might have felt and tried to throw him off a cliff. What an emotional blow that must have been. And now today we see Satan back on the scene, attacking Jesus in a new way. Of course, it's not Satan himself this time. It's only one of his minions. But he's more than happy to let them do the dirty work for him if it gets done. With this background in mind, we'll be looking at this particular passage under the following theme and points. Jesus' authority is asserted over the spiritual world. And we'll see, first of all, the confrontation with Christ. Secondly, Christ claims all. And third, Christ commands and the demon obeys. So where do we find Jesus at this point? We see him back in Capernaum. It seems that of all of the cities in his preaching tour, they were one of the most open to his work and his teachings. And so we see that he remains there for a little bit longer. In verse 31, he says, teaching them on the Sabbaths. So multiple Sabbath days. And everyone is amazed. You may have noticed earlier in this gospel, being amazed at what he's saying is not necessarily a marker of approval. It's not necessarily a sign that people are changing. And you may have experienced this yourself. Someone is listening to the gospel. They're willing to sit down with you in conversations with you. They're willing to receive what you're saying, but they don't seem to be changing. Well, what do we see Christ doing here? Jesus is making the most of the opportunity that he has here, as he does with every chance that he gets. When the fields are white for harvest, he himself rolls up his sleeves to get to work and calls on his followers to do it as well. You may not see the final results yet, but while the opening is there, we can make the most of it, continually chipping away at it. Jesus is busy preaching. And one of these Sabbath days that he's preaching, he has an interruption. 
Uh, you may have experienced some interruptions in the church services over the years when you've seen pastors preaching. Parents take their kids out. Volunteer firefighters, they run out when they're paged. Or else there's a medical scare, a medical emergency that happens. Well, what Jesus experiences here is on another level altogether. This isn't just a health scare or a rebellious child. This is a spirit that has actually possessed the man. And just in case you doubted what kind of spirit it was, Luke makes it clear that it's not the Holy Spirit of whom he was speaking before. But he says, specifically, it was an unclean demon. Whether that means it was a demon that caused this man to make himself unclean, or the fact that, it was, that he himself was being made unclean by having a demon within him, that's not completely clear here. But the fact that he is possessed by a demon is unquestionable. A man who is possessed by a demon has invaded the synagogue. He has invaded a place of worship. The devil has sent a demon into the very heart of Christ's ministry to try undermine him. It begins in a pretty innocuous way. The possessed man shouts, Let us alone! What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? What have we to do with you? Basically means you can't speak into our lives and we have nothing to do with one another or why interfere? At first, he almost seems like any other heckler. Someone who doesn't like the message that's being brought, and so they try to shout down the speaker. You can, find, you can even find that today, although it's currently illegal in Canada to do it during a worship service. But his next words reveal him for who he actually is. He shouts, Do you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And at this moment, it gets interesting. What does he mean by that cryptic phrase, calling Jesus the Holy One of God? It's at this point that it's clear that it's not the heckler who's speaking, but it's someone who has a deeper knowledge of what's going on. It's the demon inside of him. It knows that Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy to proclaim liberty to the captives. And it knows that it is holding this man captive. It knows that its days are numbered. Having come face to face with Jesus, the one who met Satan, the prince of demons, on equal footing and came out victorious, this demon is terrified. And it wants to know if this is the end of the road for it. But even as it feels like it's in its last moments, the demon still tries to undermine Jesus. It still tries to bring down Jesus. And that's a sign of true malevolence, of evil. You may have met people like that, people who know that they're going to face their own personal destruction, be it in their relationship, their career, their lives, and they're going to do as much damage as possible as they go out. That's a truly demonic way to go out. It uses an interesting tactic, though. Instead of lying about Jesus, this demon uses the truth to try to undermine the work of Jesus. He screams, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. 
The Holy One of God was a description that the people were familiar with in Jesus' day. It was a reference to the Messiah. Luke essentially takes it to mean the same as Christ, Lord, Messiah, or Son of God. You can see this later in the chapter in verse 41 where the demons are driven out shrieking and crying, You are the Christ, the Son of God. But if that's what it means to be the Holy One of God, why does Jesus tell the demon to be quiet? Isn't this a good thing? Doesn't he want his name out there? Well, there's three reasons in particular to silence the demon that commentators point out. First, you know the saying, any press is good press? The idea that any publicity is good publicity? Get your name out there? When that report is literally coming from demons, it's not the best of press. Second, there's the idea that the general population had. The idea that the general population had that the Messiah was a political figure. And they often acted on that. Consider the history lesson that the wise man, the Jewish wise man Gamaliel said when the leaders of the Jews wanted to figure out what to do with these people who were preaching about Jesus in Acts 5, 36 and 37. He says, some, he says, some time ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. The Jews had a habit of lifting someone up to be their political Messiah, and that usually had disastrous results. That's why Gamaliel was able to conclude, and now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan is a work of men, then it'll come to nothing. As good as their intentions might be to lift up this person, to lift up the Christ as their political savior, that's not the kind of savior that Jesus wanted to be. The third reason that he didn't want it known to the general population that he was the Messiah right away was because he wanted people first to come to understand what kind of person the Messiah was and needed to be and what kind of things he would do. As we saw a moment ago, they had all kinds of ideas about who the Messiah was and what the Messiah would do for them. In fact, it was this box that they put the Messiah in within their own minds that caused the people in his hometown of Nazareth to get so angry with Jesus when he made the suggestion that he was the fulfillment of the servant prophecy of Isaiah. Jesus had made it plain to them that the servant prophesied by Isaiah was there to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who were oppressed. This was radically different from their picture of the Messiah. And because of his example, saying that they would be passed over like the Israelites had been passed over in the days of the wicked King Ahab, and that this proclamation of liberty, this proclamation of freedom would go to the Gentiles instead of them, because of their unbelief, they were enraged. They had put Jesus, a local boy, and the son of Joseph into one box. They had put the Messiah into another box. 
In their minds, there was no overlap between these two boxes. And that made Jesus a false Messiah who had the nerve to top it all off by telling them that God was going to reject them for their unbelief. In their mind, this made him a false prophet whom they could try to kill. What Jesus was doing instead now was fixing the people's understanding of the Messiah who was to come. He was bringing them back to God's Word. He was pointing them back to what the very words of God were saying about Him. Combining what they said, what these words of God said with the miracles that He was doing, He was leading the people to see that not only was their idea of a Messiah wrong, but he himself was the Messiah. But during that time, while he was leading them to see this, he was not going to stay out and out that he was the Messiah. He wanted the people to come to that conclusion by themselves, being convicted by his preaching and by the Holy Spirit in their hearts. And you can see this happening later in the book. In Luke 9, we read Jesus asking his disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah, and others say one of the old prophets has risen again. He said to them, but who do you say I am? Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Here again, Jesus calls for silence. Because even having made that confession, the disciples themselves still didn't fully understand what it meant. And so Jesus needs to carry out the remainder of his task as Messiah to be, as we read in Isaiah 53, not an earthly king and ruler to lead out a rebellion, to lead a rebellion, but a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, smitten by God and afflicted, who is wounded for our transgressions. People would be able to understand the fullness of his task on earth in a much clearer way after this happened. Jesus was telling his disciples, wait and see how this works itself out. Then when it is all over, you'll truly understand. This confrontation he was having with the demon was one step towards the people understanding the real kind of liberty that Jesus was bringing. But it wasn't that final step yet. And so he called for him to be silent. Now when we hear this confrontation with a demon and the call for him to be silent, it should be a reminder to us as well why Jesus came into the world. When speaking with the demon, he wanted to make sure for the sake of the people that they didn't come to a twisted view of him. In coming to him as Messiah, he wanted them to come to him not as just a political figure, not as somebody who was going to lead them in victory against the Romans, but as a complete savior, as one who claimed, laid claim to everything, not just one who filled one particular need. When you come to Christ, what are you coming to him for? Are you coming to him as a person with an agenda? 
Are you coming to him as someone who has an idea in mind of the need that you want him to fill in your life? Maybe you want healing from something. Maybe you have emotional scars that run deep in your soul or a physical illness or a mental struggle. Maybe you want him to fill the gap of loneliness in your life. Or maybe you want freedom from an addiction. Most people who come to Jesus come to him with a need that we want him to fulfill. Now there's nothing wrong with that because he did come to bring liberty. He did come to set people free. But we should be reminded that this freedom comes at a cost to us. It comes at the fact that we need to submit our entirety to him. It comes at the cost of a destruction of a part of ourselves. I heard a story of a while back, and I'm not sure if it's true or not, of a Muslim man who came to speak to a Christian ministry, a missionary. And he was brought to understand that salvation comes through faith, that we can't do anything, but Jesus does it all for us. But he couldn't get past what this meant. He said, I can't give up Islam because your God demands too much. In Islam, Allah asks for much and he demands much. But in Christianity, God asks for nothing from us, but demands everything. You see, this man understood something about Christianity that many Christians don't. Jesus pays for everything for us. There is nothing that we must pay. But then, he responds by saying, I have now bought you. And we are called in turn to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him. He requires nothing of us in payment, but He takes us in our entirety. Our entire life is made into a new creation. We find our identity in Him. Our very being is turned over to Him. And in the coming to life of the new nature, we see the dying of the old. That's what the demon realizes when he cries out, Did you come to destroy us? When Christ enters into the scene, the change will be radical. Jesus came to destroy the power of sin and the devil. He came to deal with the biggest problem facing mankind. And this very first encounter, this very first miraculous act that we see in Luke is a picture of that. It's a picture of what his whole ministry will be like. It's a fulfillment of what the prophet Isaiah said about Jesus coming to set people free. He came ultimately to set them free from the power of sin and the devil. And that sin has its roots set deep. Just as this demon had possessed this man and fastened, himself, fastened itself to him in such a way that he didn't have control over his own words or actions anymore, so we too are reminded of the way that sin has sunk its hooks into our own souls. And we're reminded that when Christ lays claim to us, that sin is something that will be destroyed. 
Today we're in the age after Jesus has completed everything he came to do. After he has fully revealed himself as the Messiah. And we see the picture that's being brought forward by Jesus driving out, that, that this picture that's being brought forward by Jesus driving out a demon, it's a, it's a microcosm, it's a small world picture of what Christ has come to do for us. But the question remains, for what reason do you come to Jesus? Do you come to him to fix whatever your personal problem is? Are you willing to accept the change that comes with it? Because if Jesus Christ works in your life, he doesn't do half measures. He transforms you entirely. Maybe not in an instant. For some it's a very slow pro process. And for all, it takes a lifetime to finish. But it means that when you come to him, you need to be willing to not just have a change in your circumstance. Because that would just be fixing a symptom of the problem. But you need to be willing to surrender it all to Jesus. Do you find yourself in a frightening or compromising situation? Certainly, do what you can to get yourself out of it. Certainly, turn it over to Jesus in prayer. But also recognize that what got you into that situation begins not just in some other person's actions and not just in your own actions, but it's rooted much deeper than that. It's rooted in sin. When Jesus came, He came to destroy sin. He came to put to death our old natures in Him. He came to cause us to die in Him, to crucify our sinful nature and be raised to a new life. Now, you can't crucify another person's sinful nature. You can't change them even though they might desperately need that change. But you can bring yourself. You can, by the power of the Spirit, come to Jesus. And while the sin that's still within you will whisper in your ear that it will destroy you if you try to put it to death, that you need it, and that you can't live without it, Jesus, in His authority, speaks otherwise. He says that He frees you from sin. If circumstance, if your surroundings are changed for the better because of that, praise God. And if your circumstance doesn't seem to be immediately changing, but you can see your soul being shaped and formed through Christ for the better, even in your circumstance. Praise God. But remember that He came to save you from your sin and not from your circumstance. He came to save you from your sin and not primarily your circumstance. Now, there's a second thing that you should note in the demon's statement. There's a threat that he brings. A guarantee that he feels he can carry out if the exorcism happens. See what he says there. Did you come to destroy us? The demon is confident that if he's driven out, he can take this man with him. If he's destroyed on his way out, this poor man that he holds captive will be destroyed. Sin, when it has a hold of you, it tries to convince you of the same thing. 
That being exposed, that trying to cut it out will result in your death. It says that without it, you will be destroyed. And we are doing it, and if we were doing it in our own strength, this would perhaps be true. Jesus speaks about that in Luke 11, verse 24. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest. And finding none, he says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the man is worse than the first. The same can be true for sin. If you manage to put an act of sin behind you through sheer force of will, one act of sin that you no longer take part in, then sweep out the house of your life, leave it neat as a pin, but leave it empty. You've set yourself free for only a limited time. You haven't truly set yourself free. That demon will come back with seven more, and your last state will be worse than the first. But when the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. This demon was certain that if he was destroyed, he would take this man with him, even if he was facing against the Holy One of God himself. But Jesus utters a simple command, and the situation is changed completely. Be quiet and come out of him, he says. And the demon can do no more than throw him down before it comes out of him because it cannot hurt him. And the crowds are amazed. Not only did Jesus control the demon's speech, but he commanded the demon, and even though the demon had sworn to take this man with him if he was destroyed, he couldn't do a thing. What word is this? They say, for with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. Evil forces, even when they have complete control over someone, must bow to the word of Jesus. He said that he had authority only a few verses before this in Nazareth, and they threw him out rather than believe him. But now he's put it on display for all the world to see. At the command of Jesus, every knee must bow, including that of the demonic world which thought it had complete control over a man. So what's the message for us today? Beloved, the spiritual world is real. Demonic forces are not to be tampered with or played with. But recognizing that, we can also recognize that we have a Lord, an older brother who is more powerful than even the forces of darkness. That even when it seems that the forces of darkness have complete control over a life, he can lift that control with a rebuke. Now consider this. If Jesus can command a spirit, he can command a soul. If he can drive out a demon, he can certainly drive out sin. He can transform us from the inside out, doing a work which our Canons of Dort describes in Chapter 3, 4, Article 12 is not in any way less than the power of creation or the raising from the dead. If you submit your life to him, not coming to him with an agenda or a small corner that you want him to fix, but daring to bring your whole self in its terrible, broken entirety before him, 
Do you not think that he can transform you? Sin may say, he will destroy us. He will destroy us. Satan may whisper in your ear, I will take you with me if I go. But Jesus says, no. In me, you are a new creation. Be quiet. Come out of him. He has the authority. He has the power. Trust in that. And with care, by His power and skill, you'll find that you are not only restored to spiritual health and beauty comparable only to life in paradise itself, you will be transformed by the renewing of your minds to be made more and more into His image. We will come out of great tribulation and conflict. We'll be born out of the storms of this life because He commands and it happens. Perhaps not in an instant, and perhaps not completely in this lifetime. But it happens. His word makes everything new. After all, that's what he declared that he came to earth for. And here we see it already beginning to be carried out, and is casting out of a demon. Amen.